answer to your question, is there a way to design something securely? It depends on what you mean by secure. So if you mean that there's no economic advantage to going after it, I think it's doable. I think that's absolutely something you can do. If you mean that there is no creature on earth that could find a way around a system and there's no backdoors, nothing ever possibly wrong with a system, absolutely not. Welcome to Lessons in Leverage, the podcast that takes you behind the scenes of success. We'll help you unlock the secrets of leverage so you can amplify your impact in the world. Here's your host, Spencer Lowe. Welcome back to another episode of Lessons in Leverage. Uh, today, I'm excited to have Robert Hansen uh, on with me. Uh, he's also known as Snake and is an American computer hacker, executive, and entrepreneur. He was the founder and CEO of Sec Theory and was the co-founder of BitDiscovery, after which he became the deputy CTO of Tenable, and after that was after BitDiscovery was acquired. So he has previously worked at eBay, White Hat Security, Realtor.com, Move.com, uh, Cable and Wireless, uh, ValueClick, and Silicon Alchemy. And he founded the hackers.org web application security lab. Um, very, very interesting guy. Started deep in the technical side and has gone on to build businesses and expand his leverage significantly in the way that he's uh, developed his skill set and his career. And so really excited to be able to learn from and chat with you today, Robert. Well, thanks for having me, Spencer. So and then tell me about uh, <laughs> beginning of that journey. Let's... <laughs> Well, I mean, you know, we, we got to give you credit where it's due. It's uh, it's uh, it's an impressive set of accomplishments. So with that being said, you know, tell me about when you first started out. We were talking just before we came on a little bit about kind of starting on the very technical side. And I'm sure that that's impacted your whole career. So you've gone into leadership positions and building businesses. You know, what, what did you learn? And it sounds like you might have some strong even feelings about the value of starting in that deep technical expertise and how that can teach you some high leverage skills that allow you to move into those other positions. 100%. I, I like to say that if you learn to program, it is quite similar to learning how to read. Like the difference between you knowing how to read and not knowing how to read is going to send you down wildly different paths and give you wildly different access to things. And can you imagine living your entire life not being able to read a street sign or you know, be able to price compare to different items at the store or whatever. Cause you know, there, there are a lot of people in the United States who cannot read. I'm sure all the people on your podcast couldn't have gotten here to listen to it, to, to be enjoying this without some level of reading comprehension. But you know, there's a staggering amount of people who've never gotten there. It's just like that with programming. Like it's staggering how few people understand the, the intricacies of how to move data around or process it and programmatically in interesting ways. And it's a skill that amplifies all your capabilities. It's not like it's totally different capabilities. It's basically the same thing as being able to read and write and do arithmetic. It's just at a scale that is unlike anything else on the planet. Like I can do millions and millions of operations as opposed to one a second, maybe, or something. And that that is the kind of leverage that allows you to take one brain and manipulate many, 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 many things in the world with just one set of hands and one set of eyes and whatever. So yeah, I got started in my late teens and I was one of the very first people doing web application security in the internet. It was me, a guy named Lou you, a guy named Umbrella.name, and a guy named Michael Zalewski. That was it. There was four of us doing web application security back then. And incidentally, Lou you and Umbrella.name, we don't know what happened to them. We think they probably went off to the Chinese military or something. They just kind of disappeared. Michael Zalewski is fully retired now, so I am it. I'm the only person who's been doing computer security, this, this niche area of web application security, for as long as I've been doing it, period, on the planet. And so when I got started, there were no documents on how to do it. There was no one to teach me how things worked. I mean, there were some engineers who had built the things, but they weren't security people, so they weren't looking at it through a security lens. So there was nothing like how to hack blah. It's like we, everything was you know, just figuring it out. And, and so you, you really had to do a lot of really just, I don't know, it's kind of like a, like being an archeologist or something. You just have to kind of read these old documents. Well, back then it was literally paper documents. You had to go to libraries, you know, <laughs> pull things out of 
you know, like source code and like kind of try to figure out why the engineer built things the way they, why they built it the way they did. But later on, that gave me a bit of a superpower. Like everybody, you know, something they're really good at. My superpower is I know how everything's built. So if you give me a system and you tell me like, just like a little bit about it, I can tell you everything there is to know about it. I mean, I can tell you how they developed it, why they developed it the way they did, probably the backend processes and how those are built, probably the services they're running on the background, programming languages, the problems with those languages, the kinds of issues you're going to face as you're trying to attack it or try to defend it. I mean, I can give you like very detailed analysis from very minor amount of information. It's what uh, we used to call like magic Karnak or whatever. It's like, you know, I can, I can just picture what's going on inside these systems and why they developed it the way they developed it. So as I moved on in my career, I was a bit older. I was in early 20s or something. I had this idea that I met one of the dumbest people I've ever met in my entire life. He was a stockbroker. He was just terrible, like really, really just cannot believe this guy had this job. But he basically like, you know, if the stock graph goes up a little bit and then goes down like, you know, 10% or something, it's going to go up like 30% the next week or something. And I'm going to make money. Well, this was prior to Y2K, so everybody was making money. If you're in the market, you're making money. And so I'm like, okay, well, that guy is definitely on crack. That is a terrible idea that will never work. But there is something to be said about the idea of having enough data that you could make, you can infer really interesting things out of that data. So I was thinking about like gathering like all the data on the internet and kind of putting it in one place because then you could start processing it. But you know, I was a dumb kid. I had no access to anything. I had no money. So doing all that stuff was basically impossible. And the technology did not exist at the time. Later on, a couple of years later, I ran into this one of the smartest people, actually probably the smartest person I've ever met, a coworker of mine, just a really brilliant dude. And he was talking about the game Pachenko. Have you ever seen that thing where you drop the, the thing down, it kind of bounces around pigs and lands different slots? Well, he's like, well, that's a game of skill, not a game of luck. And I'm like pretty sure you're wrong about that it's like no it's a game of skill it's just like the coefficient of friction and the bounce rate and you know velocities and you know, like you know a bunch of different things these are these are all factual things that really exist in reality it's just that no one on earth has the skill necessary to to have that all in their head at the same time and and it occurred to me yeah that's that is the problem that i need all of this data if i had all this data i'd be able to do this type of crazy prediction so fast forwarding my career, many, many, many years, I finally, there was some changes to the internet. There was, a, there was suddenly the ability to, from a single system, you could, you could scan the entire internet on a single port in about four hours. There was a change to the way the Linux kernel worked and they used something called virtual ports or send cookies. And I could effect, effectively scan everything from a single machine in just a handful of days, I could scan the entire internet for, you know, a hundred or so or 200 ports or whatever. And so most common ports. So there's a bunch of security researchers started doing that research. Like, oh, I bet we could scan the entire internet. Let's just do it. Let's let's have this data. Let's let's see what's on it. And so another thing happened right around the same time. There was this massive tsunami that went through Indonesia that like was driving up drive prices for about two years or something. Finally, after a while, those drive prices came back to earth. And so then finally we're able to, you know, we were buying singular machines, like just one U, which is like about an inch and a half tall machines that were like twenty to forty thousand dollar machines, just you know, just filled with disks. And so finally, we were able to get those down to earth. Like every machine I'd buy was like a car, you know what I mean? Like, and this is coming out of my personal budget. This isn't like you know some company paying for it. So these are very, very, very expensive experiments, but we got them. We actually were able to produce data on a singular machine that had all of the metadata on the entire internet. And and suddenly it became possible to collect and organize that data in an intelligent way. And that led me down the path of starting my company and much many other things. So before, before we dive into what that was and, and some of the other learnings from that, I want to unpack a few things that I think were just gems in, in kind of your story so far. So First thing is you talked about this concept of, you know, you're getting started in, on the internet and there's just not anyone doing it. There's not a manual on how to. And one of the things I really think about are what are these high leverage patterns and mindsets that entrepreneurs develop that give them such a different view of the world? And you started to talk about a, a process. It sounds like you even have maybe a framework here that you follow for when I don't know how to do something, I, I'm going to go out, I'm going to find some existing what was written about why it exists the way it does, et cetera. 
then I'm going to start to reverse engineer it. Is there kind of a pattern you follow to that? Or do you see sort of a framework there that you follow for, all right, don't know how to do this thing. Maybe there's no one who can tell me how to do this thing. So what's that problem solving framework or that's analysis framework you go through? Because that sounded really valuable that you were talking about. Yeah, actually, I think it's worth talking about two completely different things at the same time if we're going to do that. So sure. um, actually, I'm going to talk about something else and get there. Uh, yeah. I think it will be useful. So one of the things that I am most well known for in my industry is the fact that I've found a lot of vulnerability, like a lot, like a lot, a lot. Uh, about one third of all the top ranked web vulnerabilities came out of me and my lab. So my team and and these things used to be ranked. Actually, I think they finally are ranked again, which is good. But they they were ranked for a while, then weren't ranked, and now they're ranked again. But effectively, the things that interested me are things that were called architectural level flaws. So I wasn't particularly ever interested in what we'd normally call like a buffer overflow or a bug or whatever. I don't really care about those because it's not that they're not bad. It's not that they're not, you know, you can't do great things with them if, from a security perspective or, you know, damage potential or whatever. The problem is they're ephemeral. They can go away really easily. So all some company like Microsoft has to do is roll out one patch. Suddenly everyone on the internet is patched because they are very heavily leveraging their infrastructure and their update mechanisms where it just doesn't matter anymore. Like one week later, I just spent like maybe a year trying to develop this crazy exploit and then it's just gone. Like all my work is just gone. So I never liked that as a researcher. I was like, I think you're, I think it doesn't, I've always wanted to try to explain the problem more than try to fix the problem because there's, it, I'm only one person. I'm not going to be able to fix the problem. So I'd much rather explain the problem. And so I have a whole bunch of other people go and be interested in fixing it. And so I focused on these things called architectural flaws. And they're the kinds of things that you can't fix without completely changing everything about how everything is designed. And that makes people go, like the brakes fully come on, like, holy crap, we're, we're investing tons of money in this infrastructure and the entire thing is wrong. And there's really no way to fix it exactly. We have to kind of like unwind everything we've done or build a whole new internet or whatever. And I remember one time I was at Microsoft's campus and they, they had this like t-shirt with all these like bug numbers on the back of it. And this woman came up to me, she's all proud of it, you know, like, here, Robert, you know, take one. And, and so I'm looking at the back and I'm like, okay, which bugs are mine? I have no idea. And, she's, and so she, she had them all memorized. She's like, she's like, wait, like none of yours are on here. And I'm like, well, why? Why not? She's like, because you come up with these like architectural flaws and they don't get bug numbers because there's no way to patch them. And she's like, should I take this shirt from you? I'm like, no. No, like there's no one on earth who deserves this shirt more than I do. <laughs> but the... But I think the reason I like the the types of flaws that I was after is because 10, 15, 20 years from the day I find it, I can still go and talk to people about it and they will know what I'm talking about. And it's not like I have to do new research to explain how how bad things are. It's like it's done and now I just go and reference it. And yes, eventually sometimes they will actually finally get their shit together and fix what the, the original issue in one case, it took them about 14 years to fix, but finally they fixed it and now it's not a problem anymore. And I can't talk about that flaw anymore, but there's a whole bunch of other ones that I've found that we can still talk about. So, and then the other thing is, is along that path, my early days of trying to find, I guess probably this would be considered more architectural flaws, but it was kind of on the edge of being a bug. I was looking at these things called looking class scripts, which are ways where people can run commands on routers to tell how other routers are behaving. Sort of like it's it's mostly meant for system administrators to figure out how the internet is behaving. And I'm like, well, if I can run commands, bad commands on these routers, and these things are web applications, and I am a web application expert, that effectively gives me control over routers, which controls the internet. And so I I was focusing on that because it was... In my mind, I, I use the word choke point. It's a choke point on the internet. But as soon as I said the word, I started looking for other choke points. Like, what are other things? If I attack one thing, I have now attacked uh, everything. So, like, there's TCP IP stacks, like the, the way the internet protocols work, sure. There's just browsers. Everyone uses browsers, which is actually where I spent most of my time. There's programming languages, you know, like Python or something. So I found vulnerabilities in Python, et cetera, right? You know, big chunks of infrastructure so those choke points were most interesting to me because you couldn't talk about these topics without bringing up research that i had 
I had done, which got me invited into every room. Like anybody who was working on anything security related wanted me there, even if they couldn't afford me to like get that guy here because he knows things about things. And now it's, you know, focusing more on AI research and again, choke points. Like I'm finding ways to detect the LLMs exist to do prompt injection and like get around it in interesting ways that are not really defendable. Like architecturally, the whole thing is wrong and people are like, well, fuck, well, what do we do? And I'm like, exactly. <laughs> like the architecturally it's wrong. It's not, it's not a bug. It's not something you can fix exactly. And so when I'm thinking, go back into your original question here, when I'm thinking about how to attack something, first, first thing I do is I have to decide I don't like it. You know what I mean? Like there's something that I don't like about it. Like there, there's got to be, you know, inherently there's, it feels like the design flaw of some kind. Like I, I just feel like it's not doing the thing I think it should do, or it's broken in some way, or I, I feel like it's there are too many people relying too heavily on it. So I just don't like it. Right. So it's a mental decision. I'm just not a fan of this technology. And then secondly, then the next step would be, okay, how do normal users expect that this thing is supposed to work? So I'll, I'll basically write out all the use cases and then right underneath it, it's like, well, what if I did the exact opposite? So if like, for instance, users are supposed to be able to reach the internet, but what if the internet told them to reach to the internet, intranet behind the firewall? Well, that's the abuse case version of that. So we came up with this thing called internet port scanning. We were able to use your browser to reach inside your own network and start hacking machines on our behalf. So what does that mean? It means the way that browsers interact with websites is fundamentally broken because the browser trusts that the, the web page is going to tell it only benign things. Well, if I tell you to do something very dangerous, you can't tell that there's a difference between a benign thing and a dangerous thing because architecturally there's no difference. Me telling your browser to click on a link to go to your router to be able to configure it from, you know, your Netgear router or something, that's benign. Me forcing you to go there and click on links without your intentioning, intentionally doing that, that is not benign, but it looks very similar and uses the very similar technologies. So, yeah, I mean, so sometimes it's reading source code. Sometimes it's literally banging on it. Sometimes it's what's called fuzzing, where you basically write a program, this is why it's useful to program. You write a program to basically go over things like thousands or millions of times until you find iterations that have problems. So for instance, you can have a you know a link, it could be ahref equals blah, 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 blah. And if you put a quote there and, a, and an end angle bracket or just a quote, you're no longer inside, let's say the alt tag of an image or something. You're, you're now outside of it and you can start running uh, JavaScript. So that would be bad if I could be outside of that, that alt tag. You know, I entered my name, it's Robert Hansen. If I put our Robert Hansen quote, I am now outside of the quotes. I'm now inside of different space and the way the browsers work. Well, it turns out like if you're in different language sets, like, like Japanese or Chinese kanji, they have multi-character characters. So it's like multiple, you know, individual characters get comprised into a single kanji. And some of those characters can include quotes. And so I can eat the quote and I can do weird things. And, you know, and so that's where fuzzing comes in handy because I don't know every kanji in the universe and there's no way to do that manually. It takes forever, but it's very easy to do in a handful of seconds here. That's amazing. So I like this framework that you kind of described here. And and some of the key points that, that really stuck out to me is this idea of, first of all, taking the time to think through how it's intended to work and then and then inverting the paradigm, thinking about it from the opposite lens. I think that that skill set, I mean, is is a life skill. I mean, there's so many applications for that. <clears throat> Certainly it helps when you're trying to find the way something doesn't work, but people have things that don't work in their life all the time. And sometimes the hardest problem we have is our beliefs, our mindsets, our stories that trap us into seeing it just through the intended lens that we started from. And so we don't see what the real root source architectural issue is because we don't have the ability to, or maybe we just didn't take the time or follow the framework to go, what if I invert this? What if I look at it the opposite way or start to come at it from an unintended direction? And then all of a sudden the problem looks totally different. And I've certainly seen this in my own business where there's times that I realize, oh, the only reason I have this problem is because I've taken as granted or I've assumed or kept these assumptions and beliefs from before about this system over here that looks unrelated, but it's not because I made these decisions in sales and now I have these problems in delivery, right? I made this decision in delivery. I have this problem in invoicing or whatever. And so maybe they, they're not showing up in the exact same place. 
But once I realized that one assumption is driving all of them, one assumption about how the whole system of the company is supposed to work, then it starts to get easier and easier to go, okay, here's how I have to start to redesign and get down to that root level. And I love the, the other piece of this where you talk about then the power in that is that, you know, it's hard to fix. But I imagine that also is a, a superpower and that that means that there's also sort of a barrier to entry. It may, it, it's sort of a, a durable advantage, if you will. Mm -hmm. So case of, of, you know, finding a bug means that for 15 years, or I'm sorry, not a bug, but a, a deeper flaw, it means that instead of like a bug being gone immediately, it's going to last for a long time, be valuable, be useful, be something that, that you can work with. And in the case of business, you know, it, if I want to have a competitive advantage, I've got to, something's got to be different at a deeper level. It can't just be some surface level. I changed my marketing. I changed my tagline because otherwise everyone changes their tagline. And there's nothing to it. There's no substance to it. So, so I, I think that this pattern really permeates everything we do. And so I, I would love to turn it back to you and ask, you know, once you really started to build this muscle over time, doing this in technology, how did that start to become a superpower that graduated into these other aspects? Because certainly you went from being deep in just the technical to then incorporating more and more. And I, I have to imagine that this and maybe some other mindsets and frameworks started to allow you to find root causes and, and think about other things in this system's mindset. I think probably the first sort of aha I had was when I started working with my marketing friends. So I have about 50-ish of the most top, like best, best marketing uh, people in the world as, as very close friends of mine. Like you know, the head of SEO for Condé Nast, the head of SEO for Chicago Tribune, the head of SEO for LinkedIn, you know, the CMO of Facebook, et cetera, like these super, super, super high-end marketing dudes. And they like me because I can destroy their competitors' marketing, or they like me because I can tell them how some competitor would destroy them. And mm -hmm. so I've been hanging out with them for the last decade or so, or 15 years maybe. And, and what I've found is that the issues I would, the way I would attack things in security is identical, like identical. In fact, the industry is very similar as well. Similar personalities, similar kind of conferences, like it's very, very similar industry. And so when I go there and I talk to them and I say things like, well, if you take Google's like, here's what you must do list and you literally turn every single thing upside down, this is how to attack all your competitors. Just like you should have good keywords. Well, what if I can inject bad keywords? You should be, you know, have good links back to your website. Well, what if I can send a whole bunch of spammy links to this website, et cetera, right? And you can just create something called negative SEO as opposed to positive SEO, search engine optimization for those who don't know that. So once I kind of like grokked that this is all very related, it became easier to talk about it more in business context. Around that same time, I got really in, closely in touch with the insurance companies. So I got really, really tight with those guys and, and also governments as well as around the same time. And what I started realizing is the insurance and governments, they see risk in completely very different ways. And both of them are very equally important, but very, very different. And so the insurance industry thinks about everything living on sort of a risk graph. So I started talking with anybody I could think of that might know anything about finance at, a, at a, this sort of level that we're, we're talking here, which is above where most CPAs would be, let's put it, let's put it that sure. way. And, and what we found was that we could graph all risk, which didn't sound possible for a while, but I think we figured it out. It was basically the expected value of loss post-compromise multiplied times the, the percentage of likelihood of risk on one axis, and the other axis was cost of remediation pre-compromise. And we could put everything on this graph, all the vulnerabilities in the planet, like everything from dropping a nuclear bomb to getting a paper clip, like a uh, paper cut rather. Everything would be on this one graph. And so we thought we could just take from the upper right-hand corner of the graph to the to the efficient frontier of the curve and say, fix everything from here to here, and then don't fix anything below that. But what ended up happening was we were very wrong. So some very super, super high-end CFO and outside general counsel for Samsung. So we were talking about this. He's like, no, Robert, I'd fix every single thing on that graph. I'm like, I don't, I don't understand. And how is this happening? But, but basically you have weird things in finance. Like, like for instance, the every, if, let's say it's a non-publicly traded company. So they want to be bought by a publicly traded company. They're going to go public, something like that. Well, you have to multiply times the valuation. So everything that lived on this graph had to shift up by a multiple of, let's say, 10, 
And then therefore everything that I'd shown him on this magical graph that I had created fell above that risk curve that I was talking about. So, so suddenly somebody who I could hardly convince to fix anything a day before would now want to fix everything. And so, but we had a couple problems. One, I don't know where every vulnerability is. The insurance companies don't know where everything is. We don't know where everything is. The bad guys don't know where everything is. There's no way to like predict it. But what we can do is insure against it. We can say, well, the likelihood of a bad thing happening as black swan event is X and that that might change over time. But but more importantly, there are some vulnerabilities that matter a lot more to actual loss than others. And so we started talking with them and they, they actually have a list and there's only about 60 vulnerabilities that matter. So we're like 60 vulnerabilities. That's really, really low, like really low. But well, what about all these other vulnerabilities? And like, they just, just matter. Just, just to clarify for everyone following along, when you're talking vulnerabilities, are these specifically web vulnerabilities or are these just anything that gets insured against? Any vulnerability of any risk that insurers would protect against? It, it, it is everything, but in the case of uh, the conversation we're having right now, I'm talking about web or network-based vulnerabilities. But, but what we basically found was that we could actually not fix most vulnerabilities, which was really clever. So instead of this whole system costing a bunch of money, it actually saved a ton of money. In fact, we could actually prove like reliably that most of the things people do to protect themselves is a waste of money and time. And that was sort of a massive eye opener for our team. And we're like, okay, we're thinking about this all wrong. We need to come at this much more from a business centric approach than sitting back. But so that's one half of it. The other half is the government. Now the government's like, what monetary risk? What the fuck are you talking about? What's a nuclear bomb getting stolen mean from an economic risk perspective? It's not the cost of materials. It's some enormous mega larger amount if you want to try to quantify it in monetary risk, but it's it's not really, you can't really do that. So it's a different kind of risk profile than you would with a like e-commerce site, let's say. But either way, it was very useful and it, and it got us talking to all these very large business owners and security teams and financial departments and M&A. And that's where I think the M&A is where we where we really, really kind of figured out the special sauce because when we talked to them, we're like, okay, you know, you could use our system to theoretically, anyway, no one ever tried this to do this, to map out the risk profile of companies before you acquire them. And they're like, yeah, yeah, that's interesting, whatever. And they never call us back. So one day I was talking with my sales guy and I'm like, okay, well, you know, it sucks that no one's ever done this. This is really interesting. I think there's really is something to this. He's like, no, man, they are using it. They just don't talk about it. So I'm like, can you get them? Can you get me on the horn with one of them? He's like, yeah. So we got talking to one of them. This is a many, 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 many time over multi-billion dollar company. And they're like, yeah, we use this in every acquisition now. Effectively, what we found is that you can predict corporate malfeasance from the public internet. So what basically ends up happening is you you look at their environment and you, you grab a snapshot and you look at another snapshot after you tell them you're going to acquire them and whatever changes is whatever they want hidden. So if they if it goes up, then you know that they're hiding the fact that they don't really have that many customers and they're trying to make it look like they've got a whole bunch more customers than they have. They're trying to cook their books in the last possible second. If it changes a lot, that means they're hiding the fact that their infrastructure is garbage and they had some guy running around with the you know, USB stick installing stuff. And that means you're inheriting a lot of uh, technical debt because they don't have the business processes that you'd expect. But the most interesting one is if it goes down because then you go back in time and see what's what used to be there. Oh, that gambling site or those porn sites, like that's how they really made their money. Now, they're, not only is their company not worth anything close to what they're saying it's worth, but you can go to the street and say, actually, this is how the company makes all their money and make them persona non grata to all the potential acquirers out there. So their company goes to base, not I wouldn't say to zero, it's worth whatever money they make, but it's worth nowhere close to what they want to sell it to. So you can use that in negotiations and say, look, here's what you're really worth. And I'm going to take like 10% of that because you, know, you, guys are, you, get, you guys are shysters or whatever. So apparently they had killed off multiple deals, um, very large multi-billion dollar deals using this software. And that's when I, I think my brain kind of fully opened to the power of a mix of technology and business, I would say. Wow. Yeah, that's, I mean, that's, that's an incredible use case. And so as, as you're doing this, are you still, as you're starting to work with the insurers and with the government, are you still 
kind of at this point in your business journey entirely focused on the security side, finding the vulnerabilities, sort of all of that? Or have you started to shift your focus in terms of the value that you're offering beyond that? What what was that journey like in terms of, because we've talked about the concepts, but but what did your actual business start to look like? Yeah, I well, so I started the company to be a stock prediction program, actually, which sounds crazy and everyone's like, oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. But it it actually was pretty good. Crazy what someone does. <laughs> like, uh, yeah. Well, actually, that that's that's worth taking a, a second out of, to talk about. No one believed I could do this. No one believed I could build this system. Like my my wife at the time, I, I'm now divorced, but my wife at the time, she absolutely did not believe. She's like, you can't do that. You can't build this thing in the basement. I had a little literal basement with these machines, and it was it was like forget like 95 decibels like were crazy loud you had to wear your protection to go down in my basement like i'm like i can do it i know how to do it i just didn't have the technology you know so you you if you know it, you can do it if you actually know you can and it's not just a theory like i i knew i could do it it was it was hard work i mean it took me years to build it but like you should do it you know what i mean like if you think there's a market for it and you can do it just just do it but anyway yeah, I started trying to build this thing as a stock prediction program. Remember that stupid guy I was talking about earlier and the smart guy? Like, I was thinking, like, I could actually predict markets with this. So just by way of example, so you know I'm not crazy. Like, so let's say I had a, a number of subdomains associated with a domain. Well, the subdomains might be associated with their customers. And so if I know how many subdomains they have, I know how many customers they have, et cetera, right? And so therefore, I can predict their earnings. Or another example would be you're looking at their infrastructure over time. So this in this case, it was MailChimp. MailChimp's going along, you know, maybe a slight growth pattern, you know, normal amount of growth. And all of a sudden there's a doubling. And then, you know, that growth continues, that slow growth continues, and then a halving, and then the slow growth continues. If you do a delta between before that doubling happened and after the doubling happened, you know, after they come back to earth, the infrastructure is basically totally different. Like there's only like you know, less than 1% that's the same. So what happened is they moved data centers. And where did they move data centers from? Well, they missed they uh, moved from Rackspace. Well, Rackspace, MailChimp was their biggest customer. And so they're going to miss earnings because they lost their biggest customer to Google. And then other things like, like you'll be looking at an environment, you could actually tell that here's the domains that they're building. Like, so this is, I think, Exxon, or no, BP rather, as BP, they had something, you know, GulfOilResponse.com or, you know, whatever, something, something response.com for whatever disasters had been there. And then one day Abu Dhabi response.com appeared. I'm like, what the hell happened in Abu Dhabi? <laughs> and so there's all these like crazy way. And that's just three, but there's dozens and dozens of different ways to do this. Like one time I found myself on a, on a server that allowed me to, uh, to access the power within a data center. And I could tell the power utilization of servers over time. So at midnight, the power utilization went up on a bunch of machines and went back down to zero. Well, those things are batch jobs. And I can tell by how long that power cycle runs. <clears throat> if it only runs for an hour, if it runs for five hours, I can tell that's how many customers that they're processing. So I can tell exactly how many customers they have. I mean, within a very good margin of, of reality. <clears throat> so anyway, there's a bunch and bunch, bunch of different ways to do this. And, and so I went to go talk to some big hedge fund managers, this one guy specifically out of London, multi-billion dollar fund. And he's like, Robert, we hear pitches like this all the time. Yours is the first one I actually agree would probably work. Problem is we'd have to change our thesis. Like if we missed even $1 on one trade, like come in, somebody could come back and sue the crap out of us because we're not following our thesis. So sorry, no can do. You'd have to build your own fund. And so I looked at that a little bit, but I, what the hell do I know about running hedge funds? So I ended up sort of ditching that idea and moving more into what we're talking about now, more on the security side, which I was already an expert in anyway. So it was kind of an easy, easy move. But back to leveraging here, we made two, I think, distinct changes that made that successful. One is that we moved into our area of expertise instead of somewhere that we weren't very comfortable. And so we were able to leverage all of our existing customers that we had in previous lives, our existing relationship with our uh, head of sales, who's amazing, best sales guy on the previous company and best sell sales guy at our company and best sales guy at the company he's now at. <laughs> like he's an incredible sales guy. And by the way, he learned how to program in case you're wondering. Like it's, 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 it's a superpower. And then so that was one chunk of leverage. And the other one was we decided we were never going to have a large sales force. We were always going to be using like 
VARs, and we were not going to have a big engineering team. We were going to make everything self-service. So you go to the website, you insert your own data, like we should never be involved in any part of the process. So that meant that we were able to keep our total headcount down to eight. And we ended up selling for, I think, 54 million or something like that. So really nice little turnaround on a you know, four-year company for a really tight group of people who just kind of just, we all were staying in a lane. I don't feel like any of us worked particularly like crazy hours. You know, we're just a you know, normal job. And, you know, a couple of years later, we had a really nice exit. So, I mean, that comes down to some really high leverage decisions you made about your business model, as well as the deep expertise that you'd acquired over, I mean, however many years prior to that. <clears throat> the relationship that it sounds like there's a lot of ingredients you pulled together that you're able to leverage to get such a, you know, it's like one of those classic sort of overnight success, four years, but mm -hmm. built on many years of expertise building, relationship building, and everything else that made that possible, gave you the leverage to go do that in four years. Would you, what would you say were some of the, the biggest drivers? You mentioned the relationships, you mentioned settling into your area of expertise. Were there any other major drivers that sort of allowed you to go do that at that scale in that time period? Yeah. And I, I remember looking at what I considered to be the the biggest companies that were close, they were closely aligned with my skill sets, although not necessarily in my industry. And the two that I picked out that seemed close-ish to my wheelhouse were Google and Facebook. Because they both effectively are the same thing. I'm not talking about the ad engine. I'm not talking about how they make money. Which, by the way, I used to work for Value Click, so I know all that dirty part of that business. But I, I like them because they were, they were basically just repackaging other people's data. That's what I liked about them. They were metadata, so Google doesn't produce like millions and millions and millions of different brands and websites and whatever. They just scrape them and they make them accessible. And Facebook doesn't go to the most epic parties in the world and take the most crazy parties photos and and post like long diatribes about them. No, their users do. And they just repost, they just, you know, they're the conduit for getting it in front of everybody. And so by virtue of being more of the, the metadata broker between other people's data and themselves, I really liked that idea. I'm like, I wonder if I could build a system to sort of take advantage of other people's data and just basically charge them to have their own data back. <laughs> Sounds kind of crazy, but... <laughs> <laughs> we've walked on that model. That's a, it's a very lucrative model. Again, when you look at this skill set of looking at some of the, the things on the periphery, getting all the way down to the underlying architecture and patterns and systems design that, that powers it, that's a powerful system to understand because like you said, two of the largest companies in the world are built on that pattern and thousands of small companies in less successful ways are built on that pattern. So that ability to start from what you can see and then be able to do the work to get down to the underlying pattern and say, all right, if this is all that's really happening in a very simplistic way, um, then now how can I apply that pattern either to my area of expertise or to an area that hasn't been applied yet? Because I know it works. I'm starting with a massive advantage on any other entrepreneur because I've, I've got a working pattern and I'm just figuring out or doing the execution in a new way or a new area. I think that's something that people also underestimate. I think people look at an entrepreneur and think they're always doing something new and super creative and super unique. And what I see is usually an entrepreneur took a pattern they saw existed and learned about, applied it slightly differently. Even my business, I came up under a business, learned everything they did, said, I can do this better. I understand the underlying pattern. I'm going to do it slightly differently, slightly better. We grew three times as fast and, and were able to save a bunch of time. And it was great because I knew that I, I was, I was able to capitalize on that pattern. And so I think just the pattern recognition of itself instead of just settling for what you see on the outside is a critical component because most people would not look at Facebook and say, they're just repackaging data. You know, they, they wouldn't get all the way down. <laughs> and it's like the timeless example of the guy who wrote the letter. I can't remember the quote, so I won't misattribute it, but they, you know, he says, you know, I, I apologize for writing a long letter. I didn't have the time to write you a short one. So this is kind of <laughs> the long letter. Of so it's where I go to post my pictures and talk to my friends and it connects people and it's all this. And, the simple, if we put in the time and really get down to it, the simple is architecture, you know, framework that connects the metadata, repackages people's data, serves it back to them in a useful way. And when you get down to that simplicity, you're like, oh, I could do that. And by the way, I have all this skill set of scanning the internet, vulnerabilities and web design architecture that I can then 
or web application architecture that I can then use to package something that maybe people aren't packaging today and serve up in a very different way. And so that's, you know, that that's just such a unique aspect that, that, that I think most people stop. They stop at the surface and you have to go all the way down to the deeper level. So I appreciate that example. Absolutely. With, with that all being said, getting close to the end of our hour here, tell me a little bit about, you know, you, you went on to sell that company, as you mentioned, um, and, and see some really good success with that. Post-sale, tell me a little bit about, you know, obviously you still have all these high leverage mindsets, ideas, et cetera. And now this little baby or this little project that you built is off in the wild. What was that transition process like for you? And then how, where did you start to put your time? Because most people I talk to, if they take time off, it's like three to six months before they're bored because they want to get back to solving the problems and finding the patterns and building something meaningful. So just tell me about your journey from that point. I know you've done some things and kept yourself busy in some other ways. Tell me about what you've worked on and kind of how how that has helped build on this skill set for you. Yeah, so I I think I'm like eight months into my six months off and I'm going crazy. <laughs> I, just, I am not one of those people who gets to sit still for very long. In fact, I was already looking for things to do on the way at the door, so I wasn't that wasn't dawdling. It's just that all of my ideas take, unfortunately, quite a bit of time to generate. So in my spare time, just completely for fun, I've been getting more into hardware hacking. It's an area that I hadn't spent much time before, so I have a little bit of time now. So I'm I'm kind of filling a hole that I had so that when I'm talking to people about hardware stuff, I'm coming there with an area of expertise again, like I would in web application or browser or network security. I am also, I have a podcast that I've had for a while now called The R Snake Show. We've got some really interesting guests on there. It's kind of about geopolitics and technology and kind of the stuff we've talked about here, really. A lot of different diverging business and, you know, marketing issues and so on. And then I have just, I've gotten really into AI for a wide variety of reasons. I've gotten really into it. So I'm writing a book called AI's Best Friend, which I'm still editing. So hopefully that'll be out sometime. Who knows? Worst case, I'll just open source it because I really don't care about making money on it. I just want the kind of the data to get out there. And then I was probably wasn't going to talk about this, but in context of this, I think it actually does make sense to mention we're starting a fund, security specific fund, and and without getting into the thesis because I think that'd get me in trouble. One of the things that I think me and my partners all sort of agree on is it kind of sucks that we only get to run one company at a time. We have so many good ideas. We have so many ways to help people. We have so many interesting ways of thinking about things, so many connections. It's sort of a waste to shove it all into one company. So instead, we like the idea of being able to help out lots of companies. And so the fund kind of naturally scratches that itch. And we have some ways of doing things that are way outside of the traditional norm that the security does. I I think we're kind of the naysayers of the security industry in a a large part. So we get to use some of these sort of expertise in interesting ways that you wouldn't necessarily be able to do if it was just one company, you know, your own company kind of thing. So yeah, I think it's such a powerful insight because it's another, it's another pattern I see in entrepreneurs. They build, they learn, they go succeed, sell a company or exit it or replace themselves in a leadership position. And some of them go on to just want, like some get addicted to the starting. And so they just want to start, start, start and be the operator in the company. There is a, a group that that fits into. But a lot of the ones that really develop this high leverage mindset transition immediately to how do I play it at a higher level? Like it, that, like you said, it, more than just one company. Like there's so much more to offer than just just one company as a vehicle. I was just last night at, at a basketball game with a good friend of mine who sold a company a couple of years ago for $250 million. And he was telling me some of the stuff he's working on. And I mean, he's in hundreds of companies now and, you know, making an impact across so many companies because the things he knows and the skills that he has are, are way bigger than just one company. And even he's, he's actually starting, he just acquired a, a small company that he's now going to, going to roll up. And, and immediately again, it's, he only acquired it, not because he wants to work in one company, but because he sees the opportunity now to combine tens of companies to create a much larger outcome. And so there's these these high leverage skill sets that show up. And so it's it's interesting to think about why is it that the really successful entrepreneurs tend to all of a sudden get into funds, large portfolios, advisory positions for many companies. It's like, it's not about the money. Like the, you have enough money after one good exit that like you could live a very comfortable life forever. It, it's really, if you wanna have an impact, you have to have more leverage. And so you see what you can do in one company. And then you see, 
man, what can I do across many companies? And the impact you can have for people, for the world, the satisfaction you can get, the fulfillment you can find. And sure, I mean, the more money you can make all in these higher leverage opportunities. And so that's another pattern I just want to call out that I noticed that I just think is so powerful to, because it stacks on top of itself. You know, it's it, it, as you build, you can do more and more and more. Maybe it starts out as just an employee. Maybe it just starts out with just one skill set, but then it can become many skill sets, ownership, founding a company, building a company, many companies, funds, large groups of companies, larger groups of capital, you know, that, and, and the impact just is limitless. There's so much more that can be done. So in very inspiring to, to want that transition for you. I, I think you're absolutely right. <laughs> Where I really got my start doing all that was, was helping out small companies that I knew a lot of the founders. And so they wanted me to be involved just because they knew me. And I'm like, I can't join your company exactly, but I can, you know, advise from the side. And that led to more and more advisory positions. I'm probably on like 10 or 12 advisory boards now and and offered a couple board seats and turned them down because I don't want the the extra sort of liabilities associated with being on a board. <clears throat> Despite the fact that there's bigger upside, I you know, just would prefer to help them from the sidelines as opposed to be directly involved in, you know, whatever corporate affairs they've got. <clears throat> but yeah, you can definitely spread yourself nicely in lots of places and help out these companies that would otherwise frankly, there's no way they could afford, like zero chance they could afford a guy like me. And so what's the alternative? Just they just don't have security. And some of these companies are very important and doing some very, very interesting things. So this is sort of a nice middle ground of providing your expertise and leverage, despite the fact that they there is no way they could traditionally put you in any you know normal role. So yeah, I'm, I really like it. Even if they could pay the salary, you wouldn't find it fulfilling to go work as an employee at XYZ company and just do that one thing for that one company. It's, it wouldn't really drive the impact that you're capable of. Uh, you know, it's once you get to that level, it's like, that's not going to be fulfilling <laughs> for, for most, yeah. maybe for, yeah. I think for most people, it's like throw a big salary at them. Okay. Yeah. That's not a job that's kind of not at, at the level of leverage that I would want to operate. Correct. And there's also a lot of single point of failure associated with that. If one bad thing happens to that one company and suddenly you have no job, there's no upside for you. I kind of like the idea of diversification in that context. And as you said, if I spent all my day doing boring meetings and accounting and whatever, it's like, it's just not useful. Like you can hire someone much cheaper who can do all those day-to-day -day menial tasks and just bring me in when you have like, Robert, we're trying to figure something out. Like, this is unobtainium. Could you please find it for us? I'm like, okay, great. We'll send, spend some time and build the thing. Yeah, I, I would say the the happiest day of my life that I remember anyway was the day I realized that some code I had written had finally reached everybody's browser on the planet. So I I had not just I had not just come up with this idea, but I had advocated for it for years, and it finally reached the browser and now it is everywhere. Every man, woman, and child who uses the internet is protected by something that I was directly involved with. Do you have so, any, any idea what the number of devices that is? Rough. It's in the billions. I, I don't know the yeah. the answer. <laughs> I don't know. I don't know either. I was just wondering, because like, that's a massive impact. That's uh, billions yeah. and billions of devices. And I, I know there's two types of people out there in the world, the, the people who are totally money driven. And then there's the other kind of billionaire, you know, the people who've impacted a billion people's lives. And and so that only works with leverage. Like it's, you can go and feed a homeless person and help somebody out. You can, and I'm not saying you shouldn't do it, but I'm saying that there's no leverage there. Mm -hmm. Or you can go out and do something really meaningful that, that directly impacts and protects a lot of people. That's awesome. Well, uh, before we wrap up, I do want to just touch on some of your thoughts around AI. I mean, we, we talked about a little bit earlier, you mentioned that that's an area that you're focused on. And it's something that we talk a lot about on the podcast because AI to me is, is I think very simply, it's a lot of things, but it is a massive source of leverage and it is also a massive disruptor of leverage. There are historical sources of leverage that will disappear or will go from being a high leverage sort of competitive advantage type thing into totally flat. And I think people often are either looking at one side of that and hyper fear, just like, wow, it's going to destroy this form of leverage or this opportunity I have or this career or this job, or they're looking at the other and they're saying, oh, this is, it's going to create so much net gain, benefit, et cetera. And I think the truth is often somewhere in the middle, it's a little bit, it's muddy, it's not clear. And in a lot of ways, it's our job to go shape it. And so 
with your knowledge and and your skill set, this is an area where you know AI does really well with extremely large sets of data. You know, we talked about how code can go take your brain and put it in millions of places, and AI is just a further amplification of that effect in in some ways. And so, when you think about the impact you want to have with AI and, and kind of the future you see with AI, what responsibility do you feel, and what vision do you have for that future? And, and how AI might impact the future and how you're hoping to, to use AI to impact the future. Well, do you have an extra hour and that's or less um, version and then maybe we'll have another podcast sometime to dig in. Yeah, and I feel like this is a much bigger topic. So I feel a tremendous responsibility. So I've already been to the White House talking to them about it. I've talked with the head of AI at the Pentagon about this and to some extent, there are some very, very, very good people in the Pentagon, by the way. They really know what they're doing. They're very smart. They don't have all the answers, but they are, they're the kinds of people you want thinking about this kind of problem. I do not feel confident about the White House, though. They, they did not give me the impression that they had any clue what was going on. So I feel... Whenever I look at new technologies coming out, so like a new browser technology comes out or something, and like... The browser manufacturer will come up to me and say, hey, Robert, we, we're inventing this cool thing. Come check it out. And I'll take a look at it. And I'm like, explain explain how it works. Usually I can do it verbally, but sometimes you have to look at the code. But they're like, oh, here's how it works. So I'm like, okay, here's how we turn it around. Here's how to do the terrible thing. And they're looking at me like, holy shit, that just took us like a year to develop this thing. And you broke it in like 10 seconds. Like, And they're, they're still in the ship. They're still going to ship it anyway. Like it's too late. It's kind of like out the door. And now they're, they're in the t- telling people about to get excited phase, not not like putting on the brakes. So it's it's sort of out, it's already out the door. I feel like we're at that phase with AI. Like people are already putting it out the door and then they're saying, hey, Robert, look how cool this thing we just developed are. Wow. Yeah, there's a lot of ways to attack that. That's really very poorly thought out. And so my role, I think, I mean, I don't have the job of, you know, being the internet police or something or, you know, the conscious of the internet. There's no one paying me to do that. I literally have no job at all at the moment, really. But what there's a difference between knowing what's right and knowing what to do and 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 being like a you have to do it this way. It's sort of like I've just I'm gravitated to doing the right thing. I just like I know what to do. And so I'll sit in these meetings with these people like, you know, the head of AI at Microsoft, like their the acquisitions team, like they're bringing new tech in and stuff. And like, Robert, we're really, really concerned about like the fact of there's abuse in these systems. I'm like, yes. I mean, you kind of should have thought about that. Like, <laughs> like before you started funding open AI, right? Okay. But anyway, now that we're here and then we'll have that conversation and they don't like my answers. They never fucking like my answers. They're hoping you have the easy answer, Robert. Just give yeah. me a breath. Give us the bug fix that just yeah. makes it go away. I'm like, you, you guys architecturally built this thing wrong and and they don't like it. They're like, oh, oh no, but like there must be a way to retrofit. I'm like, well, if you're going to retrofit it, here's all the ways you could do it and here's all the ways I'd break that. And so I mean, I'll give them the answer, the answer they're after, but they're but then I'll tell them how it's broken. Crap, that's not as, it's not as good as we had hoped it would be. I'm like, I know because it's a stupid idea and I wouldn't build it that way in the first place. But okay, I don't have uh, much, but that touches on the concept that I really would love your insights on. And that is, is there, is, is there, is there a right way to design any system? And what I mean by that is, is there any system you've ever found that you can't find a vulnerability? Because, you know, the, the story of the systems design is in my experience, trade-offs, you know, there's always trade-offs in, in what you're trying to optimize for the outcome you're trying to produce. And so I've never seen a system and I have a, a less experienced career than yourself, certainly, but I've never seen a system where you, where you get around that. And so my, to some extent, I do wonder, isn't there always going to be a way to break it? I, I don't know. I'd love to hear your thoughts on that. Okay. Uh, do you have two hours? Mm-hmm. Yeah, fun questions here near the end. Yeah, so I, okay. So, okay. has a really complicated answer, but so I, at a high level, I'd say that my current theory is it takes one hour longer, no more, sorry, no more than one hour longer to break something that it took to design something. So I will generally, if it, it took you a thousand hours to develop this piece of technology, it will take me no longer than a thousand plus one hours to break it. And 
that seems to have held up. I don't think I've encountered a system that was designed that I wasn't able to wasn't able to break in that time frame, whatever the whatever it is plus one hour. The um, the answer to your question is there a way to design something securely? It depends on what you mean by secure. So if you mean that there's no economic advantage to going after it, I think it's doable. I think that's absolutely something you can do. If you mean that there is no creature on earth that could find a way around a system and there's no backdoors, nothing ever possibly wrong with a system, absolutely not. I can break into everything I've ever tried. I've broken into the back end of 2100 banks, flight control systems, water, power, systems that tell airplanes like how much they should weigh, like... I mean, pretty much anything I've ever heard of, either I've broken into or I know somebody who has, right? I can introduce you to somebody who's done that type of research. So I don't feel confident you're going to be able to design a system to stop an adversary, but I don't think that always matters at all. I think what you really need to do is make something so expensive, it doesn't make sense. Like a lot of people like the bear in the woods analogy, like two guys in the woods and I don't have to run out, outrun the bear. I just have to outrun the other guy. I hate that analogy. I've always hated that analogy. I think it's a very poor analogy. It implies things about the internet that just aren't true. Like you can leave the internet. What does leaving the internet mean exactly? Yeah, like what do you mean leave? Like if your company is going to transact on the internet, you got to stay there, right? So you're never leaving the woods. And it's not like there's just one bear. There's lots of adversaries. And it's not like the bears are done eating the one guy and then, okay, I'm done eating for the rest of bearedom, you know? Like I've got to get hungry again and I'm going to go after somebody again, right? So it's a terrible analogy. It implies that there's an end to the game and the game just keeps getting played forever. So I think a better analogy is if you're looking for something from nature, it would be something like the prairie dog. So the prairie dog's kind of a meek little animal that has burrows underground. And when there's a predator nearby, like an eagle or a, a snake or some or snakes kind of a bad example, like a fox would be a bigger, better example. Like some animals will start chir chirping to alert and everybody will run to the nearest hole. Now, normally under normal conditions, the, the prairie dog will kick everybody out of its hole. It's kind of the biggest like little rodent in the, in the village or whatever. It can kick everybody else out aggressively. But in those times, evolutionarily, it has been more advantageous for to save all comers. Everybody's allowed in the hole. And we think the reason for that is they starve the adversary by virtue of working together in that collective, despite the fact that these are adversaries for food and other scenarios, you're better off starving the adversary than you are starving your next door neighbor. And so you don't want to kill your buddy in the woods because you never get out of the woods and now you don't have any buddies. And so that's kind of a long-winded way to say, I think you, I think you can I can think you can design systems that cause such economic friction to the adversary. Like I can put up enough like hurdles for them to they see the hurdles they're like woof there's a hurdle there well that right there you got rid of 90 percent of the adversaries because they their automated tools are just going to break as soon as you see the, see the hurdle so maybe you have like five percent who are willing to go beyond there and they're like okay i'm going to try to break this thing i'm like actually try and then you know maybe another like two or three percent who actually succeed and then you have one more barrier on top of that and then everyone's like ah fuck comp so unless you're talking about state actors, this is where the government comes involved as opposed to the insurance industry. Breach loss compared to threat actor like the Chinese or something. Those are totally different worlds. In the case of Chinese, you're going to need everything you can possibly throw at the problem and a lot of detection systems to detect when you fail. This is where things like honey tokens come involved and any sort of ways to expedite you know, log analysis to identify erroneous behavior. Anything like that will help reduce the dwell time. And typically we're seeing dwell times of like over a year on these systems before the adversaries actually do stuff to them. So if I can reduce it to six months, I've reduced the bulk of the adversaries actually doing anything on those machines. So they don't actually get to breach loss. They don't get to the point where they start pivoting around. So it's complicated. There's a lot of moving parts to security. Yep. Well, I appreciate those insights. It's again... Lots of wisdom. Really appreciate some of the patterns and mindsets and everything that you shared. If anyone wants to get in touch with you, maybe they're interested in whatever you do next in terms of a potential fund. Maybe they're interested in just getting some consulting or some advice or some help. What are the best ways to contact you and get in touch? Well, you can certainly hit hit me up on Twitter. It's at rsnake. I'm on Instagram. I think it's the rsnake show. 
or my website is rsnake.com. Awesome. And don't forget to check out his podcast. Robert, thank you so much for uh, coming on today. We've learned. Thanks for having me, Spencer. Yeah. Hey, before you go, I have a small request. Our mission is to empower as many people as possible to maximize their potential through the power of leverage. Could you help us in this mission by leaving a review on iTunes, Spotify, or YouTube? And if you know just one person who would benefit from today's episode, would you please share it with them? Your support means the world to us, and we are thrilled to have you in the community. Thank you for being a part of our journey and helping us grow. You can find show notes for today's show and past shows at LessonsInLeverage.com, which also has links to connect with me personally and connect with our various podcast channels across your favorite social networks. A big thanks to Solve.Cloud who sponsored this episode. They're a group of expert consultants that help SaaS and financial services companies to implement, optimize, and manage Salesforce.com. They can help you with custom integration solutions and are helping customers to implement some of the most important generative AI technologies. You can find them at Solve.Cloud. That's S-O-L-V-D dot cloud is the URL. Thanks again, and we'll talk soon.